0: Welcome back to another episode of the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We are so excited to have Matt Barrett. Matt Barrett is currently a business consultant in the Colorado Springs community, and he is the former CEO of the Better Business Bureau of Southern Colorado. He has a wide range of experience from all around the country and in life planning and coaching and consulting. You're not gonna wanna miss his dynamic and adventurous story and what life planning has done for him and his advice on what it can do for you. Brent, of course, needed this lesson a lot more because he has no idea what he wants to do with his life. And you know what, John Mark, that's a great point.
1: Who knows what they're doing on a day-to-day basis? I mean, it's pretty obvious that you had no idea what you were doing when you picked out that shirt, but that's beyond the point. I think this conversation we had with with Matt was just a great conversation, especially when we got to talk about goal setting and producing specific, measurable results from it.
0: Now, Brent, something that's great about you is that I can always count on you for savage comebacks. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Matt Barrett. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day, engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Radspinner. And I'm Brent Sabati,
1: and this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't.
0: All right, Matt, so you've been... A leader in the community in a lot of different capacities, and you've also pretty much moved all around the country. So at least since you've been here in Colorado Springs, you have been the CEO of the Better Business Bureau. You kind of cleaned up the mess that that was in and paved the way for the next CEO. And then also you have been a business consultant for a little bit, which you just recently transitioned out. Kind of fill in the gaps for your professional career. Tell us a little bit more about where you've been and how you got to where you're at, and just tell us a little bit about your personal life as well.
2: Yeah, quick overview. Um, I grew up in Iowa. I went to college at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, Nebraska. I actually started off wanting to study psychology and did that because I thought at some point I wanted to be a pastor of a church. And I thought, well, pastors have to deal with families who are getting divorced. And so a psychologist would be able to fix that. So that was my career path. And I start there because my career path seems very disjointed. Like, why would you get into business if you started off in psychology? I picked up business along the way. Got my MBA from Iowa State University, and from there, bounced through jobs crazy fast. I spent nine months doing direct sales uh, of office equipment, postage machines. Worst job ever, hate sales, still hate sales. Went from there to work for uh, one of our clients, which does school photos, life touch photos. I mean, Kids have probably had their picture taken by life touch at least some point in their life. And then I uh, was there for maybe 10 months and then went from there to work for a small construction company. And the construction company ran, the, originally started off kind of being the office manager and then turned that into kind of running everything. Uh, we made countertops out of granite and marble, mostly in residential homes. This, by the way, is all down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I was living. And then from there, went to work for the Oklahoma Native American Business Development Center, which is a crazy long acronym, government funded program. And I was paid to work with Native American tribal members as well as the tribes themselves and help them start businesses or find contracts for businesses that they were already in. Learned a lot about government contracting and random things there. Got my break. Went to work for a church down in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Did that for about a year. Moved to Iowa, back different part of the state where I was from. Assistant pastor at a church there for three years. Then, decided it was time to get out of working at a church and back into business. And so, thank goodness I had a business background as well as just psychology. And then, moved out here to Colorado Springs in 2000, well it was actually December 29th, 2005. Wife, myself, two young kids, minivan, little pull behind U-Haul with just a few Christmas presents and uh, some clothes. And we pulled in and started my job at UCCS January 3rd of 2006, where I was a director of the Small Business Development Center. Ran that for five years. Went from there to Graham Advertising, ran that, uh, the chief operations officer there for two years. Then the CEO at the Better Business Bureau then consulting for three years. And as you mentioned, just transitioning, still doing some consulting with clients that I've had, but also taking on a new role. One of my clients that I've had hired me to come in and be their director of operations. And so having a good time with that. So how's that for a uh, resume that looks like a train wreck?
0: It's a lot of different experience to say the least.
2: It is. It's kind of made me what I say, the the jack of all trades and the master of just a few. I'm not a master of all by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm pretty good at at a couple of things. But I know just enough about everything to, to get involved and at least help push it forward a little bit when needed.
0: Yeah. I've got a few points on that, but before we dig into a little bit more of your career and kind of how you got to where you're at, what are some of the things that you enjoy doing? Like, just give us a glimpse into your personal life.
2: Sure. I, I describe myself as a renaissance man. I have the most, like my resume, I have the most diverse set of interests. I, I play golf. I run. I coach middle school. Actually, now this year I'm coaching high school across country. So I enjoy running and outdoors. I do backpacking. This year, the first time ever, I was able to start a fire. I walked into the woods with a knife and I came back with everything I needed and I built a fire by rubbing bow and drill. I mean, so I can do that. I'll go to the Fine Arts Museum. Love going to musicals. A little pet project of mine, which will probably never see the light of day, but I'm actually trying to run Write a musical based on Steve Miller Band music and, and the legalization of marijuana. So how's that for a So you, you go from running half marathons to musicals to everything in between. I, I played the drums. I love music. I actually made a drum out of wood. I do woodworking. So
0: everything. I don't know that I found too many things I don't enjoy doing. I think Renaissance man would be an apt description. <laughs> is, that, is that good <laughs> for all of that? All right. Good. Thanks. <laughs> it makes for an interesting life for sure. And it's like with everything that you've done, you're incredibly <clears throat> busy. I'm sure. So you have to balance between your family. Life, as well as your work life, and also what do you do to get away? So having all of those different hobbies, those different fun things, is super important for decompression from yeah all the different things that you've got yeah that's on. right <laughs> you're exactly right. So kind of going back to your resume, as you put it. You have a lot of different work history, but it's interesting because you have like a steady growth plan in terms of where you started and where you ended up. You were on the low end of the totem pole for a while, but then you slowly transitioned into being more of an executive. So how was that transition? Was it natural? Was it easy?
2: No, it was very deliberate with a lot of work, really a lot of work. I remember I was in grad school, so I'm going to guess 23 maybe years old. And my mom paid the $50 for me to go sit in the big arena. And I don't know, there were maybe five or 8,000 people in there. And I remember they brought keynote speakers out, guys like Zig Ziglar, Colin Powell, Elizabeth Dole. Oh my gosh, my mind went like Notre Dame coach. Um, Lou Holtz was there. And I even think John Maxwell was there. And I remember Lou Holtz was talking about setting these outrageous goals for yourself. And he was afraid of heights. So one of his goals was to go parachuting. And so I thought, all right. And they gave us five minutes to write down our goals. So I started writing down these different goals of things that I wanted to do. And so I wrote down that I wanted to be CEO before I was 40 years old. And I wanted to make a certain amount of money every year before I was 40 years old. And my career path wasn't always driven that way. For example, you go to work to be the pastor or an assistant pastor at a church. And I know, you know, if you watch the guys on TV, a Joel Osteen sort of character, everybody knows he's making the big money and they assume everybody is. But the truth is, that's like half of a percent of people working in a church. Most of the people are making peanuts. And that's what I was making. So I definitely wasn't on the career path of how do I make big money, which is my goal. But... I always had that in the back of my mind, and I always thought, what do I need to do to advance myself to the next level? So I always looked and studied. I I read books. I I, I watched other CEOs You know, before the days of TED Talks. Uh, It was about reading articles, and so I would always read the latest article on how this person became CEO when they were young and just spent a lot of time really studying and figuring out how do I adapt those personalities, those characteristics into my life so I could do that. And, And then even... It probably took me four years from the time I identified I wanted to become the CEO at the Better Business Bureau to the time that that actually came to pass. I got on the board there, and at the first board meeting, the current CEO announced she was going to be, well, it was sort of prematurely announced she was going to be retiring, but I paid attention to that, and as I was driving out of there from this planning retreat, called my wife and said, I'm going to be the next CEO at the Better Business Bureau. That's going to be my next job, and it wasn't my next job. There was one more in between, but it was still on that track. And I made sure I was on the right committees on the board and friends, the right board members, so that when the opportunity came, I was the right person for them to pick for that position. So yeah, it definitely wasn't just a a by luck and by golly. There was a lot of strategy and planning that that I put into it to get there. I'm not saying everybody's that way, right? But that's just my my number one strength for strength finders is strategy. I mean, I will strategize the heck out of how to order a Big Mac at McDonald's. I'll craft a plan to do it the right way, as opposed to just walking up and shooting from the hip on a
1: lot of things. That talk that you, uh, mentioned that your mom yeah. paid for you to go. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a, a powerful lineup right there of speakers to have, especially at a young age. I think a lot of younger adults, college students, young professionals, they do realize the importance of having you know, a strategy in place of vision. But there's a lot of people there that might not have a direct line of sight on what they want to do. So what kind of advice would you give to people who know they want to succeed and accomplish something in life, but don't know exactly where they want to be? How do they strategize that? Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I think... there's two parts to that. The first thing is you know, sitting down and spending some time with yourself and figuring out what does the end look like, right? I remember as a kid, my parents are very probably, I'm realizing now, you're supposed to realize these things when you're your age, right? When you're when you're just young whoopersnappers, you're supposed what to realize all the things that your kids told you were right. It took me a while longer. I'm a little thick headed, you know, but I remember as a kid, my mom giving me probably a book on cassette of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so here I am at probably age 16 or 17, listening to it on my Walkman cassette. And I, you know, until recently, I never really went back and picked the book up again, But I was amazed to find all those things that were in there. They're like, oh, yeah, I absolutely live that way. Always start with the end in mind. I will talk to people all the time about what are you hoping to accomplish out of this? And then how do you direct your actions to get there? And so with that, it's spend some time. I don't know if you want to get away and journal. You know, for me, it's getting up and backpacking and just watching the sunset over the mountains. Wherever your quiet space is and you're not disrupted by everything, social media, whatever else distracts you. And just spend a lot of time figuring out what does the end look like for you. And then from there, back up and say, what's the first step in that direction, right? The whole journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Great, so you figured out where the thousand miles looks like. Now, how do you take that one step? And that's, I think, where where I come across a lot of people struggle with. It's great to have these big ideas, but very rarely do you see somebody put in place step number one. You find them sitting in their cubicle Two years later, still saying, One of these days, one of these days, I'm gonna be the CEO. One of these days, I'm gonna be the head salesperson. I'm gonna be whatever. But if you don't take that first step, whatever that first step is, you just sit in that same cubicle and never go anywhere. I
0: think that's a struggle for a lot of people, both younger people yeah. coming out of college. They wanna find the perfect next step. And right. of course, as I'm sure you know, that perfect next step doesn't exist. Oh so my gosh. just getting the ball rolling, getting that first step in, even if it's a, a stutter step, it's a step uh, in the right direction. Even it gets if, the journey That's started. right.
2: Even if it's the wrong direction, you know, if you were to take your first step in absolutely the wrong direction, you at least now have some momentum going one direction and you can steer that momentum around. And when you finally get lined up to the right direction, you at least got momentum going that way now, as opposed to just sitting there idly doing nothing. You know, making mistakes is one of the best things you can do. I I don't read many books, but I listened to a lot of books on cassette when I was younger. Now it's CD or podcast or wherever. And I remember listening to uh, a book, uh, Love and Logic, or Parenting with Love and Logic. This is when my kids are younger. And and I don't know, I I probably picked it up at the public library or something. And I remember the advice that the author gives, who is a former uh, principal of a school system up in uh, Denver, actually. And his advice is, allow your kids to make as many mistakes as possible when they're younger. And and as a parent, you don't want your kids to make mistakes. And as you get older, you don't want to make a mistake. And so many times we don't take any action because we're afraid of making a mistake. But by making a mistake, you're getting closer to success. And that's a hard concept to get through your head. And it sounds very cliche, the whole Thomas Edison thing of, well, each light bulb I tried or each thing I tried, I knew I was one step closer. And he had this journal of whatever it was, ten thousand mistakes he'd made. And you know that's that's great, but it's very cliche. But the truth is just. Go do something.
1: Just figure it out along the way and at least you'll know what you don't like, which I think is just as
0: important as knowing what you do like.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: Recently, I got to sit in on the Global Leadership Summit, which gathers a whole bunch of different leaders together and just Mm -hmm. has them speak to different issues that the workplace faces leadership wise. So some of the keynote speakers were ones like Craig Rochelle, Angela Arnst, Carl McManus, and... Sounds good. It was it was really good, but one of the, the really key things is that they were like, you know, it doesn't matter if you fail because you're going to learn from your failure. You're going to make mistakes and it's going to be great as long as you fail forward, learn from your mistakes and keep moving on. So like you're saying, taking steps in the right direction. Yeah. Even if you're falling flat on your face, just keep going. Yeah. I
2: mean, unless failure, unless imminent failure is going to result in somebody dying or millions of dollars being lost, you're probably okay to fail. Uh, th- those are maybe the two things I would hold back on and say, don't fail if it's going to require somebody dying. Don't fail if it's going to require millions. Of dollars going out the door, but outside of that, give it all
1: you got. It's just your ego. It's okay. That's
2: actually perfect, right? Your ego should get crushed probably three times along your (laughs) along your journey. (laughs) If not, I don't know what kind of person you end up.
1: So, backtracking just a little bit, uh, you mentioned journey of a thousand miles, which is probably on the shorter end of what you actually traveled throughout your entire professional career, going from no different state to different state. Uh, So, what prompted those moves? And nowadays, a lot of people have opportunities and across the country and. It's a daunting task for a lot of people to just pick up and and move. What kind of advice would you give to someone in that situation?
2: Well, so, you know, what prompted me was again, kind of the strategy, you know, I, I, well, early on, I don't know that strategy would have been my, my highest strength. I know that strength finders test is supposed to stick with you for life, but I think I was just too rough, too raw at the age of 17, 18, when I was choosing where to go to college, more or less, my parents decided where I was going to go to college. So I just went along with it. I just didn't really care. Truth be told, I probably didn't want to go to college at the time. I just wasn't really wired that way since then, become much more of a fan of learning. One of my other top five strengths is, is a learner now. Certainly wasn't before. You know, grad school, I, I chose the, the grad school uh, strategically because I had in-state tuition back in Iowa. So I went there. I uh, moved to Oklahoma. There was a, a Bible college I wanted to attend. So that was in Tulsa. So I loaded up the family and we moved down there. And uh, my maybe nine-month-old son at the time, who's now 20, so we moved down to Tulsa. Uh, an opportunity came up. I was looking to move from the, the place I was at to place, and the the opportunity came up back in Iowa so moved back there and I had some connections some networking you know some people that I'd met along the way and then uh, my wife's family had lived here in Colorado Springs forever I kept we'd come out and we'd visit and I'd say let's move to Colorado Springs and she'd say no and I'd say no really let's move to Colorado Springs and finally finally after chipping away at that for 15-20 years we said sure let's move out here Uh, so we did You know, so advice that was kind of my story advice you know young people about moving you know again uh, I'll give two sides of this piece of advice one side is I mean, the world's not all that big anymore. You can get on your phone. You can book a flight, probably even still tonight, into China sometime in the next 36 hours. You know, 25, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. Traveling the globe wasn't as easy as it is now. You know, and even I was watching, we went camping up at Rocky Mountain National Park up outside of Estes, and they were showing that one of the reasons that that park grew so big was when the automobile became more refined and it was easier for people to drive in the 50s and 60s. People wanted to take vacations, so they took vacations to Colorado to see these cool mountains that you think about it. If you're from Kansas, if you haven't seen the mountains, I mean, who are you? From Iowa, every spring break, we drove to Colorado to go skiing. It was easy to drive. Well, now it's super easy to travel. So younger adults just travel. I mean, see the world move. And and I've got no problem with that. The flip side of that, I'll say, and I know podcast is global. So for all we know, somebody in Tanzania is listening to this. But if people here in Colorado Springs are listening to this, I also give advice and say, stick around our hometown a little bit. I've talked a number of of young professionals into staying here in Colorado Springs instead of moving away because our town has so many cool things to offer. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I find it hard to burn my vacation time because I live where I want to vacation. So my vacation time is I'm just going to cut work a little early on Friday. I'm going to take Saturday, Sunday and be up in the mountains, you know, and I'll come back in Sunday night for work on Monday. You know, where if you're coming from Missouri, geez, how far do you have to drive to get here? That's a whole day of travel just to get here and a day travel back and you're burning vacation time. So lots of cool things around here. So how's that for two-sided advice?
0: Colorado Springs is definitely quickly becoming one of the top places to live in the US. I mean, yeah. we've been rated the one of the number one places to live your past two, three yep, years. That's right. And it's interesting seeing the culture develop that we are right on the, the breaking point, transition into something a lot more <coughs> intense culture wise. And young professionals are all moving out here, they they see the potential. So it's a really exciting time for Colorado Springs because like we have an awesome city and we have a lot more beautiful surroundings than pretty much anywhere else in the country. And contrary to popular belief it's not just because of the medical marijuana <laughs> or anything along those lines
1: it's actually a really great place to to be to develop personally and professionally in no, my opinion we
0: are not high right now just full disclaimer yep that's true I'll agree. <laughs> so you've been consistently you've been a leader so for the past what 10 years even more been on the executive team so tell us a little bit about that experience of just being a leader how did you start out in terms of your growth or some of the mistakes that you saw yourself make. But how did you learn from those mistakes into transitioning into ultimately becoming a CEO? Yeah, so kind of my
2: growth was grad school. Uh, it was really kind of the first time we started studying leadership a lot. Undergrad, we learned about management, never really talked about leadership. And, and I also think at the time I went to grad school, which would have been mid to late 1990s, leadership, the whole movement trend, the books, the, the, the magazines, you know, that really became popular. So perhaps more materials available, and maybe even the undergrad curriculum shifted as well. But I certainly just found a fascination with it and just fed on leadership. I would read every book and any book I could get my hands on on leadership. And, and this is from a guy who really doesn't like to read. I, I, I later found out books on CD, and so I would pick those up and listen to them as I drove around town. And basically, I just found I could lead at any level, whether it was volunteering at the church, whether it was volunteering at a, a community group on my, in my neighborhood saying, hey, I'll organize the fourth. The July barbecue. I mean, it's just very small, subtle little things like that. It, it wasn't like all of a sudden you're in charge of 5,000 people go run the world. It, it wasn't like that at all. I just kept trying and trying and trying. And, and, you know, then as my career advanced and I'd take the next rung up the ladder, I'd go from having four people that reported me to 10 people that reported to me to 20 people that reported to me to, you know, whatever, 100 people. And as I did that, the opportunities to lead became greater as well. Mistakes I made along the way, mistakes I I'm still making along the way. You know, I, I think there's one of the things that I definitely make a mistake about is I looked back. I was, I'll was i give you an example. Last few years, I've coached middle school cross country. I mean, you take a bunch of sixth, seventh, seventh, eighth graders, you take them out on a little jog, you send them out to a meet, they run. Moms are just happy that their kid gets a little ribbon and they, that's kind of the end of it. Well, I, I had one stellar runner who ended up going on and winning not only the state cross country meet here in Colorado, but he won the national junior Olympic meet. Uh, down in Florida, right? I mean, so he was, he really is a phenomenal runner. And I looked at that and I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to develop him anymore. So in- as an athlete, instead, let me develop him as a leader. And I watched the things he began to do as a leader. And I watched the other people around him respond to his leadership. And I said, you know, I just used Maxwell's five levels of leadership. And I said, you're down here at level one position because you're an eighth grader and that outranks a seventh and a sixth grader. So they're going to follow you just because of that. If you wear certain color shorts, they're going to want to wear those shorts. If you stretch a certain way, they're going to stretch that way. But you're prefer- performance is also really good because you're known as the best athlete in the area and you predicted to win the state cross-country meet which you did so you've got this higher level but when you can begin to develop people around you pour back into their lives so at every meet i want you to go up to them and find the runners you know all the other runners on that team and encourage them and i want you to challenge them to do something And i want you to you know give them advice on how to stretch better how to warm up better whatever whatever the case was and i watched him grow through that and i watched these sixth and seventh graders who have never even heard of john maxwell much less read Harvard Business Review or watched a TED Talk on leadership, right? And these kids are responding naturally to this This eighth graders developing very primary leadership. And I thought to myself, how often do I overthink what kind of a leader I need to be? And I think that's one of my biggest mistakes is I, I just get in I, too much headspace. I get into, all right, if I'm going to lead John Mark and, and Brent, and I've got to be your leaders now because I'm the new boss or whatever, I'm the, the executive on the committee, then I've got to make sure I come in and I say the right thing and I do the right thing. I've got to act the right way and dress the right way and I've got to make sure I take notes the right way and I follow up the right way. And that just gets crazy. The truth is, if I just show up and I just try to help you guys become better, then I'm a leader because I'm, I'm pouring back into your lives and that triggers a response for you to then want to follow me if my advice I give you helps out. And so I think that is probably one of the biggest mistakes I make is trying to complicate it too much.
0: So is it complicating it by getting too involved in the day to day?
2: No, it's just in, it, for me, it's really just the headspace. It really is. I get inside my head and it's it, part of that's the strategy, right? I'm, I'm very high in strategy, which is great. I'm very high in strategy, which is bad because I want to over strategize everything. And I want to, in my mind, every meeting is a chess game. I'm going to move this piece. You're going to move that piece. I'm going to move this piece. And, and then the game is going to end up looking just like this. And it never works out that way because I'm not smart enough to figure out every move. But I try to rehearse all this in my mind and then by the time I get ready to lead, it just gets screwed up. And I think if I would just more lead from the heart, just kind of my own instinctual, I don't know if that's the right word or a word at all, but I made it up Yeah, just my instinct. If I just follow that, kind of follow your gut, I think that would probably be the best advice I'd give anybody And in talking into the mirror here as well.
1: So just following your uh, intuition on how to develop your team and make it easier for them to do their job and succeed. Yeah,
2: if you spend enough time reading and studying and learning about principles of leadership and that stuff absorbs in you, you're going to have that foundation of what you need to do. Now, now if you are coming out and literally you've lived in a bubble and you've never heard the word leadership before, you should probably spend some time studying before you just follow your gut and not just studying books and magazines, but studying people as well. Huge advocate of looking to people that maybe you don't know and just watching how they act and interact.
0: That kind of segues into one of the next things that we talk about is just mentorship and how that was important for you. Even if it was like you said, just observing how someone leads. Who are some of the different key mentors that you had throughout your career and just life? You know,
2: when I was, I was kind of thinking about mentors and I don't know, I I know I had one formal mentor that I actually signed up for a mentorship program and I had, I don't know that I ever had a formal mentor outside of that one person. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Most of the mentors, you know, as a young kid, there was a a guy in my life and certainly my dad was a big mentor to me and and my mom as well. But there's a a family friend that was a, a, a big mentor to me and I just remember watching how this person and acted and talked, and I wanted to be like that. And I remember in college uh, looking to some upperclassmen and thinking, oh, that's how I want to be. And I remember in early career, the other lessons I learned, I remember my very first job looking at the manager and thinking that's not how I want to be. I need to make sure I don't manage that way. And this is, again, before I even knew about leadership. To me, it was just managing was leadership, and I, I didn't want to be that way. So it's looking for the good and the bad and making sure you, sometimes those negative things are just as influential as the positive positive things maybe even more. I remember when I first moved out here the very first person I met this guy named Harold just randomly called me up said I heard you started the job I want to come meet you. It's said, great come on over. So I put on some coffee cuz we all drink coffee. So for John Mark <laughs> who's a communist. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> no coffee. About the coffee not the communist part. So um, he comes over we put on some coffee we sit down we drink the coffee and we're talking and and he was probably at the time one of the most connected people in the business community of Colorado Springs. And I remember just following him around and I would say, are you gonna be at this event? Yes, I'll be there. Are you gonna be at that event? No, I'm not gonna go to that one, I'm gonna go to this one instead. I'll be at that one instead. And just followed him. And when I was there, he was always very gracious and would introduce me to the people he knew and that really got me connected in the community. But it was also watching how he interacted with people and watching how he spoke publicly when he did, and how he, you know, talked individually when he was in that circle, and those points of influence to this day, I don't. I mean, I I probably sent him an email or something, letting him know, gosh, you were really a mentor to me. And I know in other times I've had like this to kind of talk to a microphone or, or to an audience. I, I know I've mentioned him as an influence in my life before, but it was never a formal program. The, the one formal mentor I did have was a city councilwoman here. The the chamber of commerce had a program where I could sign up and, and I could get. Some Somebody to be my mentor, and I had some political aspirations at one point, and so city councilwoman seemed a natural fit. So signed up, spent a year with her, and decided I don't want to be in politics, uh, which was fantastic. But even watching her interact with people, it was brilliant—the uh, way. Uh, she would sit and talk with other city council people. She invited me to come along to a coffee meeting with her and another city council person over this somewhat controversial point. And I just sat there, right, like a fly on a wall watching these two people go back and forth about I'll concede this if you concede that. And if you don't bring this up publicly, I'll do this. And she said, this stuff really happens, right? This,
1: this is like... It's like a TV show. Right?
2: right. Wasn't it? So, yeah, I mean, that, that really happened downtown. Colorado Springs watched it happen. And so very influential watching her influence people from the leadership perspective and how to negotiate the deal. Even though I never got into politics. so
1: That does sound like it'd be a fascinating <clears throat> conversation to sit in on. Yeah. A couple of times now you've mentioned the distinction between management and leadership. Right. Uh, would you care to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah.
2: You know, so uh, again, in the in the 90s, when leadership was really kind of what I think of it its thrust, when it was like really coming on board and hundreds of books a year are being published on it, it was almost like if you were a manager, you were a failure. If you were a leader, you were successful because all the CEOs were leaders and all the accountants were managers. And of course, nobody wanted to be an accountant. Everybody wanted to be a CEO. And that was just kind of the way that the books or the articles or the whatever read. I think the way that I describe it is leadership. you can be both a manager and a leader. Manager is more, I need to get you to do something. I need to convince you to do this something. And this something is of a good nature. And, and, and I distinguish that because manipulation is management with a selfish or a negative outcome. So if I want the two of you to invest $10,000 in my Ponzi scheme, that's manipulation. Not management. If I want to get the two of you to invest. $10,000 $10,000 in your career that I don't profit out of uh, and it'll benefit you. Or I want the two of you to show up to work on time and I want you to get your work done on time. That's management because it benefits you as much as it benefits me and it's positive. But it's more the, the standard way of saying is it's more pushing. Leadership is more pulling. Another way to say it is management is more holding things constant and stable. Leadership is more invoking change. And, and I know that's all textbook answer. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I am a, well, I'm, I'm living it right now. I am both leading and managing. I'm bringing about a lot of change in my new role. At the same time, I'm taking existing processes and I'm making sure they don't change. I have to manage that we can't change everything at once, even though inside me, I just want to come in and change everything because I love change. It's fun, but not everybody feels that way. And so there's a management uh, aspect that goes into that. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah. And I think being able to have that distinction, especially for a younger person, is especially right. important as they start their career. Yeah, And I'm sure you know I've experienced it. John Marks probably experienced it. I'm sure you've experienced it. You've always had those managers who didn't do the job as well as you'd hope, right? Uh, didn't do things in ways that you agreed with, and just being able to, for your own self, make that distinction to try and improve. Right it is it's just huge you know
2: and, and let me clarify as well you know young listeners management is not a bad word you know you're not going to have your first title be leader of the world your, your first title is probably gonna be something along the lines of assistant manager or junior manager vice president of, of a bank sort of a position that's you know kind of an entry-level leadership position and as you get that you know don't despise that and think well I've failed here I am in a management position because you again, you can both manage and you can lead at the same time. And I think that you have to, I think you have to know when to plug one in and unplug the other, when to manage, when to
0: lead. So one thing that you've kind of talked about is, and you haven't necessarily hit on it directly, but you have alluded to, you've been very intentional Mm -hmm. in your path in your leadership and everything that you do with your family, even with your free time. So it's incredibly important for people to understand that intentionality, but there's always a reason behind it. So what was your why? I know that that's super important for anything that you do is to start with why. So what is my
2: why for life in general, career? You know, in the beginning, I think it was much more surface level. You know, there was a period of time my why was be CEO at the age of under 40 to be promoted to the next level, to be hired for the next job. And it was my why was more short term. As I got older, I matured. I went through some mistakes. I took some jobs that I was like, that was the dumbest thing ever. Why would I ever do that? I look back at some of the career Career choices. And I was just like, I I could have skipped over those stages of my life. You know, working at McDonald's probably would have been a better career choice emotionally. I mean, I just went through some some brutality of some of the, the places I was at. And, and I think what I discovered is the one thing that makes me happy is helping other people. I mean, the reason why I coach high school cross country runners is not because I'm going to, you know, the USOC is not going to call me and say, Matt, we've noticed your, uh, your freshman cross country runner is really doing poorly this year. We want to make you an offer uh, to come be the head coach of the Olympic cross-country team. That's never going to happen, nor do I ever expect it to happen. It would be cool if it happened, (laughs) but it's not going to happen. But what I get out of it is... I just love seeing these young kids develop. I I had this kid who was a sixth grader last year, came in and was portly to be nice about it. He was quite overweight, couldn't even run a mile when we started. And and middle school cross country around here is a mile and a half, 1.6 ish miles is how long our races are. So, but couldn't even run one mile at the time. And I remember working with him and talking with him and encouraging him, and he had no self esteem, just he wasn't good. You know, he knew he was overweight. And I remember, uh, I remember he was so excited about his second or third race in for the season when he didn't come in last place in the whole race. And to see that smile on his face, man, it still just makes me excited, makes me happy. And so, you know, that's that's something that, I mean, I, I don't get paid enough to do that. I call it beer money. Really, it's vacation money. It's just, I, I do it, I get some money, we go on vacation. And, and that's that's the purpose of that, selfishly. But the unselfish part is I love to help people. Whether it was consulting, Better Business Bureau, working at the church, wherever I was, I discovered if I could help somebody while I was doing it, I was happy. I discovered at the advertising agency I was at, I was very limited in my ability to help people and was really discouraged early on because I couldn't help anybody there. And that's one of the reasons I didn't stick around very long. And I knew fairly early on I wasn't going to stick around very long there. Uh, and it was just because it didn't match up with you know what gave me joy. And I think that's however that works together. I mean, that's, you know, John Mark, you and I got together off and on for a year, a couple of years. And it was because I enjoyed helping you. I enjoyed talking with you about your dreams. I enjoyed talking with you about whatever it was you were doing. And even going down to work your summer job and kind of saying... Try these things. Maybe this will help you. That's that's what gives me a lot of joy. So whatever career I follow is more driven by that wind than anything else. So if I can kind of set my sails into that wind, it's good.
0: And We kind of have a cool story because Matt was a mentor of sorts, kind of more off and on, yeah. but he was a mentor to me for about a year and a half. And it yeah. really helped because for me, I was getting leadership from someone who was seasoned and for him, he was helping someone who was younger really just figure out their life plans. So it's cool to see how all of that comes together. And look at you
2: now with your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Holy
0: smokes, we didn't even talk about this. You missed that portion of the conversation.
2: Yes, well, I, I bailed.
1: You must be a miracle worker to turn him into something, <laughs> even though, you know, despite the non-coffee drinking thing, well, you know, if you're that effective, then it, it that's, must... That's my one failure
2: is non-coffee drinking. <laughs> I turned my wife into a coffee drinker,
1: but I, I failed at
2: you. Although I've had 24 years with my wife and I haven't had that much time with you, John, Mark. Uh,
0: so there's still hope. That's right. What you're saying. Kind of bringing it back around more to like the the younger, the younger listeners, like the college age, mm-hmm. um, 18 to 24, kind of trying to figure out basically what they're going to be doing with their life. Right. What are some of the things that you wish that someone had told you like, hey, this is something that you should really just get involved with, even if it's not for you, just go and do this?
2: Yeah, probably the two biggest things, networking and just go experiment. Networking, you know, I very much thought I would have a job based on what I knew. And it wasn't until later in life I learned it's not what you know, but who you know. And as soon as I mastered that principle, there weren't many jobs that I applied for that I didn't get. Um, If I knew somebody on the inside, if I knew somebody who had influence, I could get there. And, And that's true, not only with career, but you know, that kind of guides other things as well. You know, if you're excited about humane society, don't come in saying, I've read your mission statement and I know all these things, I'd like to sit on your board. Get to know some people on the board and have them put you on the board. That's that's how I ended up on the board of the Better Business Bureau. I knew the guy who was finishing up his term and I said, what's it take to be on the Better Business Bureau board? He said, board meetings tomorrow, I'll tell you. I got to call that afternoon saying, you're on the board. And it was just because I knew him, not because I filled out an application or anything. The other part just go experiment how do you know you don't like something until you try it you know it's like taking young kid. well so young kids in college listening to this flashback 10 12 years ago and your parents say just try eating broccoli you might like it just try eating sushi you might like it And just try eating all these things you might like it and granted i hate broccoli still sushi i'm okay with i'm not grossed out by it i just don't crave it but there are a number of things that i'm like i gotta try that and then you're like oh that's really good or at least you know no nope, I don't like tuna casserole, which I don't. (laughs) And so as you learn, you know, to kind of choose all these different flavors of food you want to eat, different things you want to try, try the same thing with experiences. Do you know, you know, I remember as a kid thinking being a banker had to be the most boring job in the world. Who wants to sit around and count change in a drawer all day? That must be what a banker does. That's not at all what a banker does. That's what a teller does. That's not what a banker does. And so as I learned about those things, wow, I remember being coming out of undergrad now, if I, if I was doing it all over again, I might actually go, I might actually stick with college and, and get my PhD. I love teaching college classes. I've taught at UCCS for 13 years. It started my 13th year and uh, picked up teaching classes at Pikes Peak Community College as well. Again, because I love teaching. I've been picked up, I substitute taught. I don't know if I told you this. So I substitute taught at the middle school for like a week or two last spring just because I just wanted to do it. You know, so just experiment and try those things. You never know what you're going to like. But at the time, I was like, man, a PhD, a professor, that's got to be the, Dumbest thing ever. Had I tried it, had I got to know it a little bit better, I might have been in a different place today.
1: That is some great advice for, for everyone who's listening, and definitely some things that I constantly have to remind <clears throat> myself about to yeah. just put yourself out there and try new things. And one way or another, it, you'll learn something from it.
2: I always ask myself the question, and, and I ask everybody else as well what's the worst that can happen? You know, and, and as long as, again, as long as the answer is not someone's going to die or you're going to lose all your money, then give it a shot. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> so far, that's been a pretty good question to ask myself.
0: And I think for me, it's like we've Kind of talked about it. I have a couple of different business ideas. Speaking to the time, time is one of our most valuable resources. So, what do you say to like, you put yourself out there, you go through this for a full year, and then you get to the end of the road and you're like, I feel like this was wasted. Granted, it wasn't necessarily wasted, but how do you speak to when you kind of risk it and you don't get that biscuit? Yeah, <laughs> there you go.
2: You know, the, the one of the concepts driven to me early on was education is never wasted, and, and that was driven into me with the idea that formal education, college classes, grad school, that was never wasted. But there's so many ways you can learn and if you view everything as a learning opportunity, you spend this year, oh, I've always thought I wanted to be a hairdresser. So you go learn to cut hair and, and you go and you know, you're know you working at a, a salon for a year. And at the end of that year, you're like, this is definitely not what I want to do. I don't like being on my feet all day and I'm an introvert and I hate talking to people. Probably two key skills to being a solid hairdresser is stand on your feet long amount of time and love to talk to people. Perhaps even more so than how well do you cut hair is, is kind of what I've seen from some hairdressers. I don't have any hair, so it doesn't matter to me anymore. <laughs> but at the end of that year, you at least have discovered two things about yourself and you discovered a whole bunch of other stuff by talking to other people. So what are you learning along the way? What experiences have you gained from all the interactions you've had? You've now seen how one more business works. You've seen how the inside of a hair salon works, which is a really quirky, funky business uh, as I've worked with different hair salon stylists, people throughout the year. It's definitely kind of its own microcosm of business. If you learn that, how can you apply those concepts to something else? The next thing, how will that make you better? You know, that's now a new tool you have in your bag.
0: Kind of going hand-in-hand with putting yourself out there, what were some of the biggest ways that you, just one big failure that you had, and going hand-in-hand with that, how that built into one of your successes.
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest uh, failures I had in bringing it back to leadership, you know, when I, be, yeah, let me give it this way. When, when I became CEO at the Better Business Bureau, I thought I had to be the one with all the answers. And I'm a, a smart enough guy. I came up with some pretty good answers. But one of the things I failed to recognize is I got to let other people come up with the answers as well. And it was really hard for me, not that I micromanaged, because I definitely didn't. I consider myself very much a macro manager, right? I stand back away. I want to trust you to let you go do your own thing, sometimes to my own demise. You know, that, that's a different uh, horror story to talk about. But in, in, in making that mistake, not giving enough other people enough responsibility to go execute and do things on their own without having to check in with me all the time and me having to come up with the big, tough answers, I think that really put me in a position where I, I wasn't very effective. When I came out of that and I moved into consulting, and one of the reasons that I could move into consulting is now I'd rounded the bases, right? I'd i have been at the Small Business Development Center. I'd worked with all these over 1,800 small businesses that I'd talked with. Then I moved into a chief operations officer position, and and now I was in the executive level, but not the senior executive. Then I became the senior executive, so I kind of knew all the different levels, and I could work with the different businesses on all the different levels they were at. But uh, I could move into being a consultant uh, because of that, and I learned very quickly I couldn't tell my clients, here's what you should do. When I did that, they weren't interested. I had to get the client to tell me what they should do. And it was the weirdest thing because I thought, you're paying me all this money to sit here so you can tell me what you need to know to do. And I could have told you that 45 minutes ago and probably saved you some money, but there was value in allowing the other person to discover themselves. And that's the biggest thing I know. And that's that's where kind of this management leadership thing. I think leaders are okay with allowing people under them to make mistakes. Managers are fearful of allowing their people to make mistakes and you have to let go and let people make mistakes because you think about all the mistakes i've made in my life Brent. all the mistakes you've made in your life have crafted you and shaped you to be the person you are if you hadn't made those mistakes you wouldn't learn what not to do and therefore you wouldn't be as sharp and as smart as you are today about that so it's allowing people to screw up and uh, i think learning that was a, a huge part a huge lesson that I learned. I'm I'm still not sure I've mastered the lesson,
1: (laughs) but I'm working really hard. Does anyone ever
0: really master that lesson? I don't know. We're all a work in progress. It's the journey of life. That's right. (laughs) But it was interesting kind of making just a comment on what you were talking about helping them to come to the realization of what they need to do. It ties back into spin selling, that book based around asking four different types of questions. You have your situational, your problem, your implication, and your need payoff. So it rounds all the tables of what is the situation surrounding the problem that you have, addressing the problem, and just implying, here are some of the things that could happen. And then they come to that realization of, here's what I need to do. And you end up not even really selling to them. but Right. Yeah. Help them came to come to a realization of what they truly needed to do to help fix the business.
2: And I said earlier that I hate selling and I do. I hate selling a tangible product. I'm really good at selling ideas (laughs) by, you know, convincing somebody to do something. I I enjoy that. But yeah, selling a a, the the spin selling a product idea. I'm just like, ooh, I don't know if I can do that.
0: Well, let me tell you, it's uh, not the most fun thing to do. Sure. It's definitely a skill to master and probably not one that I'm (laughs) (laughs) going to ever master or I'm even sure if I want to master. Kind of transitioning into a more bullet question. Yeah. Just quick um, answer them as concisely as possible. What do you think is the most important character trait a person can have? The
2: most important characteristic I think is tied somewhere around the idea of two things because I can't come up with one. One I'll say is ethics and underneath ethics is honesty and trust and doing what you say you're going to do. And the other is resiliency. If you can learn to get knocked down and get back up over and over and over again, to keep going when it hurts, I think that is that combined with ethics is pretty powerful.
0: Recommend one resource that is helpful for you just in everyday life. I don't know that I, in, in the old days,
2: right, it'd be like the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, or it'd be like your thesaurus, but it's got to be the Googles, right? I mean, everybody goes to Google. I mean, I, I'm i on that thing. I mean, no, that's not the answer you want. You want some like magical book I've read <laughs> that's like go to that book and it like answers all your questions. I don't have it. It's Google. I, mean, I was on Google last night and I looked up the, the Fair Billing Credit Act And I was on Google last night and I I pulled down a shop manual for a 1951 Chevy with the original scanned cover and all the pages in between. Because starting in the spring, I get to start restoring a 1951 Chevy pickup truck. So I found the shop manual online. There's everything out there. That's the only resource you need in life, isn't it?
1: So Google used in the right application, not to look up funny cat videos. At sure, right, right.
0: Don't go down the YouTube hole.
2: No way, you, you. I mean, you can click the video tab on Google, and if you want to learn how to clean a carburetor on a 1951 Chevy pickup truck, that's there as well. It's it's all there. That's not the answer you were looking for, but sorry, that's the only answer I got. Well, you
1: segued <laughs> us perfectly into the next question, which is, what is your favorite book? I know you hate yeah. those ultimatums, but maybe give us a few if you have a couple on mind.
2: Well, so I'll, I'll do it this way. The, the standard classic book that uh, I probably read through the more most with anybody else, pretty cliche, but John Maxwell's Developing the Leader Within You. I think that is like the classic. If anybody wants to become a leader, that is where you start. That is almost where you finish. And it seems like, I mean, that's like the Bible of leadership. Uh, it contains everything within there, even though it's it's somewhat aged now. And the last time I read through it with one of my clients, some of the examples in there are, are pretty old, but they're still relevant. So I I think there's that. I'll also tell you just a side story on reading books. I hated reading books for so long and only read leadership management kind of stuff because I felt I had to do that to develop myself. And then one day I I go, we're going to go camping and I pick a book off my son's shelf. It's about 250, 300 pages. And I thought, well, this can't be a little kiddie book. It'll be good enough. I'll read it. It's not pictures in it. And I'm reading through it and I'm loving this book and loving this book. Oh, this is great. And I take the book and I set it down on the the camper table and on the back of it it says for ages 12 and up. And so I've discovered that I like teenage fantasy fiction which is like the most guilty pleasure of all time you know and not something that i would normally admit anywhere but since you're you know since this is guaranteed that only my mother and the two of you are going to hear this right (laughs) right
0: we'll go with that thank you (laughs) Well, Matt, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk with Brent and I and also all of our listeners. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience. So if you could just share one piece of parting wisdom, the best way to get in contact with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Sure. So
2: uh, best way to get in contact with me, um, I guess the easiest way is probably uh, by email. Um, and I'll give you my, uh, my consulting email, uh, Matt at 5-4-Consulting, and that's F-I-V-E, the number four, consulting.com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. The parting piece of advice, and I don't know, I guess based on our conversation today, is just go out and screw something up tonight. You'll be a better person tomorrow.
0: <laughs> awesome. It has been such a pleasure to have you again. Thank you. And this is Brent and John Mark signing off. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We were so thankful to have Matt Barrett as a guest today. Brent and I both learned so much from having Matt Barrett as a guest. We hope that you have some key takeaways from this conversation with Matt. Make sure to check out our Facebook page to
1: keep up to date on the future conversations we'll have and subscribe to our podcast on whichever hosting platform you so desire. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode.